Hello, my friends. I take you through a powerful essay written 20 years ago by Howard Jacobson after a terrible terrorist attack. I think it's relevant today because I'm also going to take you through a new Statistics Canada survey of which Canadians are proud of Canada and which Canadians are ashamed of Canada. And uh, I think I make the connection between these two things. Anyhow, you'll be the judge of that, but let me invite you to subscribe to the video version of this podcast. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe, it's eight bucks a month. You get my, sh- my show, Sheila Gunn Reed's show, David Menzies' show, Andrew Chapito's show, and you help us stay alive because we don't take a dime from Trudeau. Just eight bucks a month from our viewers, so please chip in if you can, rebelnewsplus.com. Thanks, here's today's show. Tonight, I'm not sure if it's good news or bad news, but immigrants hate us less than we hate ourselves. It's September 29th, and this is the Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. The wokeness that is upon us, the critical race theory, the self-loathing, it's been building up for a while, more than 20 years. I started to see it when I was a student in the 1990s. 9-11 was actually a key moment in that, an inflection point. I'm not sure if we knew it then. I could see some of it at the time. I remember I read something not in 2001 after 9-11. That's when America was attacked, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, the plane over Pennsylvania. But I remember reading something, I think it was 2002, in The Independent, a UK paper I read online. In 2002, there was a terrorist attack in Bali, which is an Indonesian island with a well-known tourism industry. A bomb blew up a nightclub, so obviously they were targeting foreigners, tourists. 88 Australians were killed. 23, 23 Brits, many others, obviously some Indonesians too. The UK would later get their own special attack in 2005, which they still call their 7-7 bombings, uh, a series of attacks including on their subway. And uh, Madrid, Spain had the same subway attacks a year earlier. I think there was some moral clarity back then before we became numb to all this, before we became tired of all this, and so we accepted all this. And I read something by Howard Jacobson, who I had never heard of before in The Independent, and he's a Jew, as you might have guessed by the name. And The way he talked about it tapped into a Jewish way of thinking, of people hating you and you hating yourself. I I know that sounds neurotic and boring and like a Woody Allen movie, but I think our entire intellectual class today is infected with that way of thinking. And here was a guy who could see it in himself, and he talked about it clearly. I want to read some of this to you, most of it to you, 20 years after I read it, because I think about this article a lot. Then I want to tell you some good news, bad news, how we Canadians hate ourselves, but how those who have come here haven't yet learned to hate us. Uh, So here's the article, choking in the stink of our own self-hatred. Now this website says 2014, but I can tell you I read it right after the Bali bombing. Let me read most of it to you, but please stay with me because I really do have news for you too. Let me give it a shot. 
What did Cain think? We know what he said. He said he was not his brother's keeper and that his punishment was more than he could bear. But what did he think? I'll tell you, he thought he had done a heinous thing. Why invoke brother keeping at this hour unless you understand brother keeping to be sacrosanct? By his shamed denial of the obligations of humanity, the first murderer proclaims the wrongness of murder. It's very interesting, and I think he's right. He had a guilty look to him, but look at what Jacobson does next. In this, he is more morally refined than many who take life. What there is no sign of in his thinking is that he was right to kill his brother, that it was brought about by the inequality of things, God's preference for Abel's incense and unfair distribution of the goods of Eden or Israel's moving its tanks into Hebron. Many are the causes of our discontents, but murder in the heart is murder in the heart. He's a good writer, isn't he? An unfair distribution of the goods of Eden. He's funny. But look at this next part. I, I think uh, this is a smart man writing this. And Abel, what do we suppose was going through his mind as his brother rose up and slew him? That in some labyrinthine way, it was all his fault? That he had brought his brother's violence down upon himself? That there is no doing without our calling for it to be done? Is Abel the first instance, in literature at least, of Jewish self-hatred? Okay, so here's the Jewish part, but bear with me. I'm telling you that we're all infected with this kind of neurotic self-hatred now. I've been thinking about Jewish self-hatred in recent weeks, reminding myself that the phrase is out of favor now, properly out of favor, that it smacks of those 19th century German accusations of Selbsthass finding confirmation of the detestableness of Jews in the fact that they detested themselves. And out of favor too, because we all accept that we can't go around accusing Jews of hating themselves every time they demur from the policies of an Israeli prime minister. Except, except it seems to me that that depends rather on the vehemence of the demurral. Okay, I wasn't really familiar with the concept of Selbstas, self-hatred is a German word, until I read this, but it, I think it's a way of coping really. If someone or if a lot of people hate you so extremely much, so much that it almost doesn't make sense to you, you either reject it as wrong and you fight back, or if you're too reasonable, too intellectual, too open-minded, you get a sort of Stockholm Syndrome and you say, well, if so many people are mad about me, Maybe they're right. Maybe I did do something wrong. I think it's a kind of battered women's syndrome, as it used to be called. I don't think you're allowed to say those words anymore. Those would be women who justify, who make excuses for the men who beat them. They're thinking, well, I must have done something wrong. I'll read more from Jacobson because he's much better at explaining things than me. You see, you read, you breathe in the evidence of an unimaginable crime done to you and yours. And you can't comprehend that such a thing could come causeless from nowhere. So you become the cause. There must be a reason in the universe. So you become the reason. It's partly altruism. You cannot bear the thought of random beings. So you supply the system. In that way, you also supply the God. Never mind Dachau proving that God doesn't exist. That's baby stuff. A sophisticated Jew can by the subtleties of self-hatred, show you that Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen, name your own names, 
establish beyond all doubt the existence of a moral universe. So again, this is Jewish stuff. You say you're to blame for the hate against you. But look, surely, aren't we all doing that in Canada and across the West? Hating ourselves, hating our history, denouncing ourselves, tearing down Johnny McDonald's statues, taking them off our $10 bill. Being anti-Semitic is out of date. Being anti-white, anti-Western, anti-Canadian, that's the new frontier. This guy is talking about it as a Jew, but does it not apply to all of us as Canadians? I'll read some more. Too much mind. That's what I decided on that day in Dachau. We had made ourselves too interior for more physical peoples to bear. Did I get this from Nietzsche? Maybe. But it felt all mine. The idea of too much mind issuing with that perfect circularity of self-hatred from my own mind and proving the case all over again. I'm still here. I could boast to the sightless spirits of those who built this place. Still here, you bastards, and still thinking. But when one of the things you're thinking is that you've brought all this down upon yourself, it's not much of a boast. And for thinking along these lines, you hate yourself yet more. It stinks, self-hatred, and its stink debilitates you because it's your stink. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? This is neurotic stuff. This is obsessive stuff. Too intellectual. Too many fancy words. Too, too much psychological trickery. I think it's a kind of mental disease of the Jews, but now it's a disease of the West. We all overthink things. Just shut up already. Gender, race, now we've invented transgenderism and anti-transphobia. It never ends. I'll read some more, and this is what I thought was amazing. Again, remember, he was writing this right after a bunch of young men and women were blown up in Bali at a nightclub by Muslim terrorists, okay? So put your mind in that context, ready? The past flows through us as certainly as the future, a genetic, no less than a theological truth, but that's not the same as taking blame where there is no blame to be taken. An obscene act of arrogation, I now realize, making one's culpability the heart of everything, unjust to one's immortal soul, which wants no part of it, and unjust even to the Nazis and their like, who must be allowed to sin egregiously on their own behalf and go to hell unmolested. Here it is. I'm going to read this so slowly. Look at this. This is the best thing I've ever read about blaming yourself, blaming the West, blaming society for the harms done to you. Jacobson's talking about who really did the crime in Bali, but who's taking the blame. Look at this. Ditto those who blew apart the however many hundreds of kids dancing the last of their lives away in Bali. It behoves us to stay out of their motives. Utterly obscene, the narrative of guilty causation which now waits on every fresh atrocity. What else are the dissatisfied to do but kill, etc.? As though dissatisfaction were an automatic detonator, as though Cain were the creation of Abel's will. Obscene in its haste, obscene in its self-righteousness, mentally permitting others to pay the price of our self-loathing. Obscene in its ignorance, for we should know now how self-has operates, encouraging those who hate us only to hate us more since we concur in their conviction of our detestableness. Here is our decadence. Not the nightclubs, not the beaches and the sex and the drugs, but our incapacity to believe we have been wronged. Our lack of self-worth. Do you understand that? He's saying, how dare you explain away terrorism 
when the terrorists themselves don't? How dare you blame someone else? How dare you blame the victims? How dare you make excuses for the harm done to you? How dare you put your own self-loathing ahead of justice for the victims? I think I've read that essay every year for 20 years whenever I think about 9-11. Jacobson thinks about these things all the time. It frankly feels out of date. The Jewish intellectual feels like something out of the 20th century. The 21st century has moved on from that. I don't think we really have intellectuals these days, just anti-intellectuals. We don't build statues, we tear them down. We don't write books, we barely even read them. We ban them now. Not a lot of room for intellectuals. And I thought of all of this because of this news story I saw in my favorite Ottawa news source called blacklocks.ca. Here's the headline, sort of grabs your attention. 53% of blacks proud of Canada. I, uh, I read their story and then I found the underlying Statistics Canada study that they cited. So you can see it here on the screen. It's from General Social Survey, Social Identity 2020, a snapshot of pride in Canadian achievements among designated groups. That's great. I mean, you hear the word pride a lot these days, but it's almost always in reference to gay pride parades. But is anyone allowed to be proud just to be Canadian? I mean, not Trudeau. He thinks we committed a genocide. Trudeau thinks our flag should remain at half-mast indefinitely. But Statistics Canada is still asking Canadians if they like Canada, which I think is an interesting question. Here's what the results say. Canadians are most proud of Canada's healthcare system. All right, I'll admit that's sort of pitiful. I mean, it's a government spending program, a sort of welfare. That's what you're most proud about. But still, I think it's better than hating Canada for it. Let me read. At a time when Canada's frontline workers were treating COVID-19 patients in clinics, emergency rooms and hospitals, Canadians were most proud of their healthcare system. The highest share, 74% of respondents who said they were very proud or proud of an achievement, reported feeling proud of Canada's healthcare system. People who belong to population groups designated as visual minorities were especially proud, with 82% feeling proud of Canada's healthcare system, compared with 71% of non-visible minorities. Among the different visible minority groups, Filipino, 96%, and South Asian, 87% respondents, were the most likely to report being very proud or proud of Canada's healthcare system. Now, as you may know, a lot of Filipino Canadians work in healthcare, so that may be why. But how about pride in, in just how we treat, I don't know, people of different backgrounds? So Trudeau's always pitting us against each other. He calls us racist or sexist or whatever. But, you know, Canadians don't share his hatred of us, at least not as deeply as he hates us. At least most of us don't. Check this out. Pride in Canada's treatment of all groups in society among population groups designated as visible minorities. Canada 2020. So the people who are the least proud of how we treat minorities, can you see it there? White people, 43.9%. Compared to visible minorities themselves, 63.6% are proud of it. They're much more likely to love or be proud of racial relations in Canada than guilty, self-loathing whites, the kind Howard Jacobson was on about. West Asians, that's another way of saying Arabs and Turks, um, they're literally the most happy people in Canada when it comes to race relations, 76.6%. That's almost double what white folks say. <laughs> I'll read some more, look at this. Almost seven in 10 Canadians said they felt pride in the way democracy works in Canada. This increased to close to eight in 10 
for respondents who belong to population groups designated as visible minorities, compared with 64% of those who did not belong to a visible minority group. Huh. And look at this. Immigrants who arrived to Canada within the past five years are more likely to feel pride in how Canada treats all groups in society. Nearly 8 in 10 immigrants who arrived in Canada five years ago or less expressed pride in this achievement. Hmm. So where's all the self-loathing come from? Where's all the hate coming from? I mean, apart from Trudeau, who's pitting us against each other. I bet you know the answer before I tell you. It's coming from the schools. It's coming from the universities. Look at this. Younger Canadians are less likely to be proud of Canada's treatment of all groups in society and the way democracy works. Canadians aged 15 to 34 were less likely than those aged 35 and older to report pride in the way democracy works in Canada and pride in Canada's treatment of all groups in society, while 62% of Canadians aged 15 to 34 reported pride in the way democracy works. 70% of those aged 35 and older reported feeling proud. Canadians aged 15 to 34 were also less likely than older Canadians to be proud of the way all groups in society are treated, with 43% of 18, 15 to 34-year-olds saying they were proud of this compared to 53% of people aged 35 to 54 and 50% of people aged 55 and older. Uh, young people are being taught to hate their country, taught to hate themselves, taught to hate what we've done together, taught to hate the country we've built. Tell me a better country! We've been taught to hate it. Young people are the ones who blame us for the world's woes. They're the ones Howard Jacobson warned us about. Stay with us for more. You are looking at footage recently released from a court of the January 6th insurrection at Capitol Hill. And I use air quotes for that because even though it's been more than six months, not a single person who's been accused or detained has been charged with insurrection. It really wasn't insurrection. The only charges or at least pleas that I've seen so far were for illegal parading. Uh, I've heard it called the great meandering. Now, I'm not downplaying it. I don't think you should go into closed buildings. I don't think you should break windows, although now we're learning that uh, the FBI had informants in there and they were leading the whole procession. I think a lot more facts are going to come out. But my point is, since January 6th, we have been told that violence is the worst thing especially if it's Republican violence, even if there really wasn't much violence on that day. And by the way, I agree, violence is a bad thing in case you're in any doubt where I stand. But contrast that and the extreme coverage of the great meandering of the Capitol with headlines like this. Should the climate movement embrace sabotage? That's in nothing less than the New Yorker, an obsessively anti-Republican, anti-January 6th publication, and then promoting a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andrea's mom. How can the leftist Democrat eco-movement embrace violence 
moments after denouncing the great meandering here to help us figure it out is our friend Mark Morano, the boss of ClimateDepot.com. I'm not trying to be cheeky, I'm just pointing out how absurd and hyper-heated the rhetoric was about January 6th, with, which in the end, prosecutors obviously don't think it was an insurrection. They haven't filed any Insurrection Act charges. But um, the debate about eco-terrorism is being normalized. How do you square that, Mark? Uh, there's no way to square it. I mean, if you think about what happened on January 6th, where the, the public house of the people, the U.S. Congress, took a little damage and people broke in. But at the same time, a year earlier, with the, with, oh, well, yeah, almost a year earlier, the, the Black Lives Matter marches literally destroyed storefronts and private businesses and homes and killed people and, and leveled parts of cities in the United States. And that was cheered on. That was cheered on so much, they lifted all COVID restrictions. So it's a very simple way to square this, Ezra. And we know this, whether it's you're talking about mask mandates or any kind of lockdown rules. If, this, if the activity you're doing is within favor of the political party in power or the ruling elite, elite then it's going to be okay. The, nine, the, the, um, the January 6th riot, or whatever you want to call it, the meandering, uh, was literally not okay because it was a pro-Trump rally. Black Lives Matter was perfectly fine with the same people outraged because it was for a good political cause in their mind. And bringing us to what the New Yorker is doing now, promoting featuring and uh, you know essentially rubber stamping eco-terrorism that's also for a good cause that the ruling elite likes so it just you can do violence but it has to be violence for the right cause or they're not going to support you're, you're going to be the evil and vilified yeah i mean here in canada it's quite something the proud boys uh is literally listed as a terrorist group i don't think there's been a single incident of proud boys doing anything in canada they used to meet in bars but it was just a, a way for the prime minister to demonize right-wing young guys. Um, I mean, they, I mean, it's absurd. Proud Boys doesn't even operate in Canada. Um, it's literally a terrorist group. But the prime minister won't lift a finger to not only the, the kind of uh, protests you're referring to, Black Lives Matter, we've seen some of that in Canada. But in Canada, about a year and a half ago, there were widespread... Um, blockades on railway tracks that could theoretically de derail a train if they weren't caught in time. Railway blockades, pipeline blockades, forestry blockades, none of that is called terrorism, even when people are physically assaulted. But um, I don't know, the great meandering and a couple of Proud Boys drinking beers, that's illegal. I, I think it shows that, uh, that police themselves are becoming politicized because it's not just politicians who do this stuff. Once these things are in, you know, the rules or the laws, they're they're implemented in a political way. I think the police are becoming more and more political. I mean, I agree. I'm now I, I get flat from some of my own followers. I I start to openly question whether defunding the police, when they're uh, heavy-handed tactics, what we're seeing in Australia or Canada or parts of the U.S. where they're shutting down people either without a mask or violating lockdown rules. Uh, I don't want to see our police. Uh, following these orders. In fact, I'm actually cheering on Black Lives Matter right now in New York City, Ezra. They're actually standing up for some of the uh, uh, African-American patrons who are being ejected from restaurants, 70%. So I believe you build coalitions where you can and you don't have uh, ridiculous, uh, like, like, like the media and the ruling elites where only certain things are allowed and others aren't. But 
in terms of uh, you know where we are in terms of eco-terrorism and where we are in terms of this whole thing, I think the whole COVID lockdown has emboldened. Uh, this is what led to the big Black Lives Matter riots because everyone was locked down. That was point number one. Point number two, the environmentalists have been very jealous of all the attention that uh, the uh, that the COVID has received and all these solutions, which they want the same solutions they've wanted, shutting down the economy, uh, unelected bureaucracy. Uh, literally, they drooled over one Chinese one party rule for decades in the climate movement. And now the Western democracies have essentially arrived at Chinese one party rule with politicians beholden to an unelected uh, public health bureaucracy. And so I think this has made the environmentalists radicalize them again. And that's why we're seeing pieces like this in The New Yorker. Environmentalists want attention. They saw the attention Black Lives Matter got, and now they, they want legitimacy, and they want to start blowing up things, pipelines, SUVs, cars. The New Yorker touting this guy who was just bragging that they had burned all these SUVs and lots, that he wants to blow up pipelines. This is, uh, you know, this is going to be our future of instilling extremism in people whenever you lock down a society suppress free speech take away people's outlet of voting democracy and uh free free expression you're going to end up with radicals on all sides and right now they're trying to legitimize the left-wing radicals be it black lives matter and or be it eco-terrorism as we're seeing in the new yorker and npr yeah i think the left is expert at accusing uh, their opponents of what they themselves are doing while they accuse conservatives of being violent and they look for violence, they believe that words can be violence when conservatives say prickly words, but their own violent actions, they, they don't call that violence. I mean, I, uh, I, mean, I remember those classic CNN banners uh, during the Black Lives Matter riots, you know, largely peaceful riots while standing in front of burning buildings. It's just incredible. I, there, there's a kind of mental, reservation that I think Leninists have, which is they'll just sort of, uh, you know, I mean, I think people by nature, when they tell a lie, they have a, they have a poker tell. They, they, it's not a natural thing. People want to tell the truth in our society and to lie, there's sort of a bit of a giveaway. People flinch or maybe they don't tell a, a whole lie. There's a, they have a mental reservation of a tiny truth embedded with it. That's, but I think that the leftist success is from looking you straight in the eye and accusing you of what they have just done or want to do, you in good faith will answer the accusation while they sort of chuckle and keep doing what they're doing. I mean, they accuse anyone on the right of being violent or inciting violence just for using words. And here they are plotting and planning eco-terrorism. It's just unbelievable. And I, I think it's a different mindset. I think conservatives, and I'm not talking about liberals who I generally like, I'm talking about hardcore leftist activists who will do anything, I mean, rules for radicals. They will literally do whatever it takes to win, uh, to use our democracy against ourselves. Last word to you, Mark. Well, your quarter reminds me, I used to cover Jesse Jackson when you know, he had shaked down Wall Street uh, through his Rainbow Coalition. And he used to talk about economic violence. And the premise there was government wasn't doing enough with handouts for minorities. But I think if you look at what's happened now, if you can't apply the term economic violence Two, what environmental regulations will do, what lockdowns have done, what it's doing to poor and middle class Americans and middle class in all the Western democracies. This is true economic violence. But they want to add to that. They want true property destruction because they want that intimidation. They know that in order to have the power of the one party state, 
in order to have the party of an unelected health bureaucrat who can just issue a decree and things happen, you got to gen up fear first. And these activists and the one featured in The New Yorker, Andreas Malm from Sweden, they know that they want to scare the public. Scaring the public leads to them getting more power. We saw it with COVID, saw it with Black Lives Matter, and they want to return the roots to the environmental movement. Remember, they've had this for years. When I was in the U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, we had animal rights activists come in and say for every scientist they killed or blew up a lab uh, doing animal experiments, that was that many animals that they saved. So there are some true animal and environmental radicals out there. And all you need to do is stir them up. And that's what our mainstream media is doing now, is stirring them up and getting them motivated and excited. Hmm, incredible. Economic violence, I think that is an accurate description of companies being yes. forced to close. Because if you don't comply, they will see, send the police to you and they will throw you in prison eventually, as we've seen in Canada. Mark, great to catch up with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ezra, I appreciate it. There you have it, Mark Morano. He's the boss of ClimateDepot.com. Stay with us, more ahead. in the United Kingdom, Kenny writes, fantastic news, Rebel UK, love it. Welcome, Lewis. I like Lewis. I haven't had a chance to meet him in person yet, but he's such a good egg uh, on TV, and I've enjoyed my, my conversations with him. Paul writes, good job, you guys at Rebel News. There's nothing better than real reporters on the ground doing their job and then turning it into a journal for the public to see at short notice, warts and all, and it's not looking pretty. Uh, you know what, I tell our people the story's out there. I mean, I, I'm here in the office most of the time. I'm in my studio. But we have a large operation and I have many duties besides just doing my TV show. But are the news is out in the field, it's on the street. I was saying to one of our uh, new journalists, it is better to be out there reporting the news and having other people chew it up, chew it over, talk it out, than being the second-hand dealer of ideas sitting back and chewing over someone else's work. That primary reporting is the most valuable thing, and, and I think that's why Avi Yamini is so successful. Well, at this point in the past, I would bid you adieu, and I'm going to do that now, but not before throwing to our video of the day. And we have a young talent named Lincoln Jay who started off as a videographer, cameraman, that kind of thing. Uh, and more and more, he's been appearing on TV. And we recently sent him to Winnipeg to a protest at a hamburger joint called Monstrosity Burger. I tell you, if, if I if were in Winnipeg and were hungry, you know, it sounds like they're great burgers, just the name of the place. Anyway, it's Monstrosity Burger. They don't believe in segregation or violating the privacy of their customers. And so there's a bit of a freedom protest going on there. Enough for me, I'll let Lincoln Jay, our roving reporter, tell you the story from the ground. So goodbye, and enjoy this video of the day from Lincoln Jay. To support and empower individuals to come out here, opening their hearts, coming from a place of positivity, respect, pro choice, meaning not just your narrative, but being open. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. You don't, you don't. You want to get a shot, get a shot. You don't, you don't. The greatest glory in glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. 
you guys rise up and keep cheering and keep holding your ground, you guys. I'm not going to get any boosters, and neither is my husband. And for the record, right now, I cut this vaccine card in half because uh, my stance when we did the rally in front of HSC Hospital was, if you can't go, I will not go. Lincoln J for Rebel News and this past Saturday for the first time I attended a freedom rally at the legislature building in Winnipeg, Manitoba. People from all walks of life from all over Winnipeg came together to protest COVID-19 mandates, more specifically to protest the vaccine passport system that we are seeing in provinces all across Canada. We had a chance to dive into the crowd and talk with some of the attendees. Let's check it out. First of all, what brings you out here today? Well, I'm here because this is about consent for me. So the fact that uh, the government wants to put something in my body, whether it be a Q-tip or a little needle, that's not cool. Not cool at all. That's why I'm here. To stand for freedom, our rights, um, and to protest against the vaccine passport that's going to be mandated soon for a lot of the health care, um, and just stand up for, like I say, our rights and freedoms. Uh, brings me out is standing for these people right here. Standing for our children for freedom. Freedom. I fight for freedom. I live for freedom, and I want freedom. Standing up for my business, standing up for my children, for my family, for their future. Um, as a small business, I've felt like I was crumbling, but being a support, like being supported and surrounded by people like this, I now know that I can take a stand and I'm not alone. Why is it important for you to support businesses that aren't discriminating against people regardless of their vaccine status? Oh, I think it's huge to support them and I, I hope that more come on board. I hope more of my vaccinated friends will come on board. The cornerstone of like uh, the success of our capitalist system is that um, the free exchange of goods. Uh, I don't need to know what your race is, what your ethnicity, what your religion is. Can you afford the object I'm willing to sell? That's how it should be. We shouldn't be allowing anybody to enter any businesses, restaurants, gyms, fitness centers, whatever it is. Like, there's no reason before COVID we were allowed in all these places and now we're not. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, so I'm going to support the people that are going to welcome me in because they deserve my support and they deserve my business. Uh, I find that's important to me because they're the ones who are actually supporting us and our rights and not actually uh, opposing them and uh, and saying that we're not allowed to be in there, right? So, um, whereas these places that are doing the dirty work for the government saying, uh, go out and, you know, make it mandatory to go into a restaurant or a gym or any of those places, hair salons, it's like, that's completely ridiculous. And it, all of them that think that they have to, that they don't have a choice, their hands are tied, that's complete bull. Well, I'm a rule of law kind of guy. I like to... Uh, I like to I like to I like to know what the rules are and, and currently the rules are we have we have the constitution we have the criminal code we have all these different things right now it seems that we're living in a banana republic so that's why I'm supporting them because they support the rules that make our society work and make our society good because that's how it should be and we need to stand united what you allow you enable so we need to see businesses like Maserati Burger taking that stand and connecting with other businesses inspiring other businesses to do so because if we do not obey to these tyrannical rule, then we don't have to. It'll be pushed back. You'll see that regression on that push if everybody took a stand together. Very important. We should have the freedom without any form of discrimination. 
the rules are not coming from the government. The rules are coming from the businesses. They're just suggestions from the government. They actually don't want the liability of making the rules, so they make the businesses make the rules. So when there's a business out there that's willing to stand up and, and speak the truth and say what's real for them, then I want to support them. Absolutely, 100%. So right now, we need to support businesses like that. We need to support and empower individuals to come out here, opening their hearts, coming from a place of positivity, respect, pro-choice, meaning not just your narrative, but being open. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. You don't, you don't. You want to get a shot, get a shot. You don't, you don't. But have it so we have our freedoms. It's not being pushed upon our children. People aren't being pushed out of work. Businesses tell, told they have to close if they trample on constitutional rights. So that's one of the biggest ways. I did go ahead and get vaccinated because I wanted to be able to travel to British Columbia this summer and go see my new granddaughter. She was uh, due August the 4th. When I went to BC and got back, I didn't have to use this vaccination card. And when I got back, I realized that the vaccine mandate and vaccine passports was now taking place where every person was going to have to be vaccinated. And I just couldn't live with myself knowing that there are those out there who just don't want to do it. I'm not going to get any boosters and neither is my husband. And for the record, right now, I cut this vaccine card in half because uh, my stand when we did the rally in front of HSC Hospital was if you can't go, I will not go. It continues to be the leader. It continues to be an example for others.